Yes, and this is Wednesday edition, April 29th, here we are, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard, this is Ian Trottier for Discussions of Truth, coming at you again every Wednesday, Miami-based, South Florida radio program, online radio, uh, this is our fourth year uh, doing the program, and uh, oh, how it has grown. Uh, look, if this is your first time listening to the broadcast, I started the program uh, due to the Zika virus. Yes, and uh, three and a half years later, here we have something called COVID-19, the coronavirus. Uh, backstory on Zika virus, uh, discovered in the 1940s in Uganda, Africa, uh, and the patent for the extraction, extraction process of the Zika virus owned by the Rockefeller Foundation. The scientists, yes, funded by the Rockefellers, and the patent uh, is currently and still owned by the Rockefeller Foundation, extracted from a rhesus macaque. Man, the pronunciation of that wrong. Uh, monkey. Um, so uh, why I began doing what I was doing, and of course it was out of invite by uh, Windward Radio. Um, uh, we now broadcast on Windward One, uh, O-N-E, Windward. W-Y-N-W-O-D-O-N-E dot com uh, and uh, other platforms. But uh, the controversy, of course, was uh, the pesticide that being used locally, as I personally would hear crop dusters fly overhead, spraying this uh, controversial pesticide known as Nalid and Diabrum. Two, those are just two, of the trade names used uh, for the pesticide uh, that was, interestingly enough, developed by the Chevron Chemical Corporation. Now, what, what's interesting to understand here for Americans and anyone globally, but, but certainly for those in the United States, uh, what's interesting here is that uh, the Standard Oil uh, started and owned by J.D. Rockefeller. I think this is 1911. Uh, it was tried for uh, uh, antitrust laws. Uh, similar to Microsoft, uh, you know, about what, 15, 20 years ago, Microsoft, uh, and even Facebook has not been tried, but I think there's been conversation. Uh, so anyway, going back in time here, and, uh, and by the way, J.D. Rockefeller's wealth, I think, would be valued somewhere around $500 billion in today's terms, something like that. Anyway, 1911, you've got Standard Oil. When, when, when the monopoly was broken up, what most people don't understand is that those seven different companies, i.e. Exxon or Standard Oil in New Jersey, Chevron, uh, the smaller companies uh, remained in control of Rockefeller. He retained the majority ownership of all the different companies. Chevron Chemical Corporation was a spinoff, of course, of, uh, or, or, or not a spinoff, but a, 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 an arm of Chevron Corporation. Uh, anyway, so it's currently owned, uh, or the patent for the, uh, uh, or the process of making Dibrom is currently owned uh, or leased to uh, Vanguard Chemical Corporation, uh, based out of out of Los Angeles. Uh, 
that's today, or at least last time I checked, uh, which would be in the last uh, three years. Um, so that's important to understand that all of these various companies under what was known as Standard Oil remained in large part owned by the Rockefeller Foundation. Now, two years later, of course, 1913 is the Federal Reserve Act passed under Woodrow Wilson, former president of Princeton University. And uh, um, uh, things change at that point. Of course, the Federal Reserve uh, took over control of the uh, U.S. dollar in, in sense of printing it, um, which was unconstitutional. Now, if you, study, if you study constitutional law and you understand constitutional law and you argue that, I want to hear your argument because everything I've read and understand is that Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution, though it may seem archaic to you, 250 some odd years now, um, or close to it, is, or, uh, uh, is, is not that long of time in the history of modern civilization, be it in the sense that William the Conqueror uh, came from Normandy to conquer England in 1066, was it? Um, and yet the Corporation of London, uh, Ronan Palin, a recent guest on the program, a co-author of Sabotage, Hidden Nature of Finance, said on this program that uh, the city of London, uh, the Corporation of London, in other words, those two are the same thing, interchangeable, uh, is a Roman mechanism. It's, uh, it is a sovereign neighborhood corporation to the rest of England. It doesn't represent, therefore, the public. It doesn't represent the people of England because it's not English. It's Roman. Well, uh, that's disputable and debatable. But, therefore, in a sense of looking at it from a monarchy, monarchy standpoint, the Queen of England, she must enter, she must act, ask permission to enter the Corporation of London, or the City of London, okay? And this is a small neighborhood in the center of London that is not what you consider London as a metropolitan area, i.e. Big Ben, Westminster Abbey, uh, Buckingham Palace. These are all outside of the City of London, but they are encompassed in the greater London area, which uh, a tourist or someone from the United States would consider being London. So how does that parallel to the Federal Reserve? Well, the Federal Reserve is similar in that it is a private bank that it doesn't represent. For the Bank of England, does it really represent Parliament? Does it really represent the, the people of England? That's, my argument is that it does not. The Federal Reserve, though the shareholders may be American, not entirely, because I believe it's a European banking, controlled banking system, uh, you can dissect the lines and try, uh, follow the lines back through uh, the Rockefellers, J.P. Morgan, uh, Senator Aldridge. Okay, a lot of this you can be found in uh, guest, uh, former guest on this program, G. Edward Griffin, who wrote the, wrote the creature uh, from Jekyll Island. Um, I've had uh, various guests that talk about this on the program. The Federal Reserve of the United States does not represent the American public. It is unconstitutional, therefore... The Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution calls for Congress. Those that you vote, pardon the, uh, the, the sound there, interruption. Uh, the people that you vote to represent you, Article 1, Section 8 calls for them to vote on the passing and printing of money. That's what it reads, basically. 
paraphrasing it. So well, then what is the Federal Reserve? Okay, so you have to, then you have to, and again, I tra trace all this back to Zika. And why this is relevant today to you, because likely, perhaps, you're listening to this broadcast from your home, from a quarantine situation where your government, local, whatever it may be, is telling you that you are unable to enter public air, that you are unable to enter and walk on what are public beaches. They're telling you how you can, you must live your life because of a health threat. Okay, it's the same thing I dealt with in Miami three and a half years ago. When I'd hear the, the plane buzz over my head, I felt it was a complete violation of the air that I breathe. And 300 people in the town hall screamed and yelled and defied and were against the spraying of the pesticide because it was a known neurotoxin, still is. Uh, the studies out of Sweden, Oslo, I believe, uh, they show that it's a neurotoxin. It causes microcephaly in developing fetus. It causes children to be born with deformed brains, uh, i.e. Brazil, receive. Okay, So I had a problem with that because here the CDC is telling me that Zika does the same thing. Of course, I'm a grown adult with a strong immune system, so I'm not concerned about uh, microcephaly. But as a human being, it's inhumane. And so I thought there was something odd here that the pesticide was doing the same thing that the virus was supposed to be doing. There was some sort of a mask here. There was some sort of a cover going on. So I began to dig. dig. And I was invited to do the, uh, the, the show, and it's, it's now in its fourth year. I have free, excuse me, Freedom Reserve coming out here. It's been pushed back to July, probably because of the COVID-19 scare. Uh, it was supposed to be coming out this past week. If you have ordered that book, um, please let me know if you get it, uh, because I don't know that printing has happened. If, obviously, if you get it, printing has happened, but uh, release has been pushed back to July. Um, please do <coughs> patron the website um, if you understand and this uh, uh, discussion resonates with you. Uh, donate to the program. Um, like all alternative uh, media news, and, and again, I never saw myself doing this. It was, out of, it was out of invite, and even writing the book was at a suggestion of former defense attorney based out of California, Mark Shaw, and please look into what he does with uh, Dorothy Kilgallen. Um, order uh, Stop Mass Media shirts, uh, No More Lies. Let's get into, before we bring on today's guest, Let's get into uh, a few guests that are lined up and slated for the program. Joe Posner uh, is slated to join the program June 3rd. He's a three-time New York Times best-selling author, former Wall Street attorney, uh, and his recent book, 800-page uh, uh, documentation uh, uh, on the pharmaceutical industry, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. Okay. Uh, he has uh, contributed to NBC, History Channel, CNN, Fox News, CBS, MSNBC, and more. He's a member of the New York and the Washington, D.C. bars, as, uh, as well as the International Criminal Court. So he's got some very compelling uh, information for us. He'll be joining us June, uh, June 3rd. Coming up here uh, next month, May 27th, we'll be joined by Seth Dillon. Uh, uh, he's, uh, he, his program is backed by Thinker. And Dwell, those are two startups that are supporting uh, his publication called the Babylon Bee, and he's based out of South Florida, Jupiter, I believe. He'll be joining us uh, May 27th for the second hour, the first hour 
of uh, that uh, episode. That day, we'll be joined by a native of Bergen, New Jersey, James Edward O'Keefe III. He's got a BA in philosophy from Rutgers. And then 2010, O'Keefe founded Project Veritas. The website has gained attention as being incredibly controversial, in so much that in their book, in, in their book, Network Propaganda, Manipulation, Disinformation, and Radicalization, Radicalization in American Politics, Harvard scholars Yoke Benkler, correct me if the pronunciation is off, Robert Ferris, and Hal Roberts refer to the website as being a right-wing dis- disinformation outfit. However, per Wikipedia and noted sources via the New Yorker, Washington Post, CNBC, other Project Veritas, uh, has received money from Donors Trust, which is a conservative American nonprofit donor advisor, uh, advised fund advisory uh, funded and backed by the Koch brothers and the Trump Foundation. Project Veritas exhorts its readers to be brave and do something, help expose corruption. Okay, and uh, I start off you didn't notice by seek and destroy, and I've been doing that now for over a couple of years. That's a Metallica written song, uh, and I do that uh, to uh, send the message that what I do. Uh, a technical glitch, pardon that. What I do on a weekly basis is to do just that. Seek out and destroy any corruption. That's on any level that you may exist in. What you don't realize, if you haven't already, is that the, Amer- the middle class in America is completely shrieking. It's being obliterated. And who's doing it? The bankers that control your government. Because the government does not control your banking system. That is the message and point. So we attack corruption wherever it may uh, lead. Den Bishops, the res- uh, president of Holmes Murphy & Associates. Uh, he'll be discussing healthcare reform. That's May 13th. And I believe next week we'll be having on British ecclesiastic historian, Dear Maid Ninian John McCulloch. Uh, he's a gay man, and he'll be talking about uh, how he left the Church of England, I believe it was, uh, uh, due, to, uh, due to the various struggles that he uh, was experiencing in the religion because of his sexual Preference and how he, how he identifies as being a human being uh, with his sexual orientation. Um, we stand for freedom. We stand for justice. We stand for liberty. And all of those things globally here are um, are having uh, an attack here. They're they're attacking your way of life. And uh, and I appreciate you standing up for it because that's exactly what I'm doing. And uh, we'll be opening up next uh, next week with. Uh, John Waters. He's an Irish writer and former former uh, newspaper columnist. Uh, I'm not sure if he still is. Uh, he's born in uh, in West Ireland, and he's fighting for your rights regarding regarding um, uh, regarding uh, COVID nineteen. Okay, Avi George joining the program. He's ringing in right now. We're bringing him on. Avi, uh, welcome to discuss the truth. How are you? Good to hear. You. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Uh, doing just fantastic. Thank you very much for for phoning in. Uh, uh, Avi, uh, are you are you currently in Israel or are you in uh, Washington? Or somewhere else. Washington right now. No, You're, I'm in Washington right now. Okay, good. So, so time is uh, time is not uh, that pressing for you. Uh, for welcome to the program. Uh, uh, I've been doing discuss your truth now for uh, going on four years, and I appreciate your uh, your interest and in, in availability and joining. For listeners, uh, would you please describe uh, who you are? You are a member of the Foreign uh, Council on Foreign Affairs, which is intriguing to me. And you've written, of course, a a compelling. A book called "Thou Shalt Innovate," which is really beautiful in the sense that, on many different levels, um, I, uh, uh, innovation is, really is attacked in, in so many different ways. And innovation can be is is is, is spawned by the 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 ability, the the in, uh, humane ability to 
think freely. That's, uh, of course, my opinion. But for for uh, for listeners, Avi, would you please uh, just give us a, a quick uh, a, a quick introduction to who you are and what you do? Sure, I'm a fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council, also a member on the Council on Foreign Relations and uh, at the Young Presidents Organization. Uh, this is my fifth book, and this is a book uh, entitled "Thou Shalt Innovate: How Israeli Ingenuity Repairs the World." It's a book basically that talks about how Israeli tech cures the sick, feeds the hungry, helps the needy. I look at Israeli technology that's value positive and making the world a better place. It's been translated into 21 languages already. And in uh, 2020, in the next few months, it's going to come out in another 17 languages. The book is having a tremendous reception globally. It's a bestseller. Um, and I think the reason why uh, it is doing so well is it is a it is both a positive story, and I think it captures the heart and soul of the state of Israel. That's wonderful. Today, yep. that it's in Israel's independence day. It's, uh, you know, today we are speaking fortuitously on Israel's 72nd birthday, and I think it's a story that does not receive enough attention. Israel is a, a country that is rife with problems, uh, but this is one part of the story that I don't think receives enough attention, and frankly, it's uh, it, it has been the most sublime hope of the Jewish people in the state of Israel to engage in a technological pursuit to make the world a better place. Uh, very well said, Avi. Now, you are uh, uh, an Israeli by birth? I was uh, born in the United States and made Aliyah as a, as a small child. I actually moved to Israel two days after uh, Prime Minister Menachem Begin uh, signed the peace agreement with the Egyptians yep. on the White House lawn, and I actually had the great fortune to meet him the day before we made Aliyah in March of 1979. I got to sit in his lap. And uh, he was the first to basically welcome us to Israel. Um, so, so Israel, of course, um, has uh, had their struggles as an identity in a sense that uh, the, what we know Israel from borders, uh, geographic borders, is a development of uh, the post-World War II era um, and, uh, let's, let's, let's kind of, Avi, I want to get your, uh, your opinion on, um, of course, in, in recent history, in the past a hundred years, um, the, the Jews in a sense, um, were, uh, per highly persecuted and killed. And uh, why, why is that? And when I'm talking about Nazi Germany, in your opinion, uh, why did that take place? terms of the Holocaust? I mean, look, I will tell you, yeah. and I, I come from a family of Holocaust survivors. I was raised by, uh, by Holocaust survivors, both in the United States and in Israel. The Holocaust was the culmination of many, many years of anti-Semitism. I, I tend to think that it is one of the blackest moments in the, over the course of human history. Uh, but this was a black mark on humanity, not only against the Jews, but many, many others. This was a black mark against liberal democracy that did not protect Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and all those who basically seek freedom. Nazi Germany yeah. was the culmination of a very evil regime that basically uh, tried to exercise superiority and, uh, and exercise a, a hierarchy. And what happened after World War II, I think, was really a, a momentous occasion where the world, the League of Nations, came together and said the Jewish people uh, has the eternal right to come home to the state of Israel. And in uh, in, in May of 1948, Ben-Gurion uh, called into existence the state of Israel 72 years ago today, and he said two extraordinary things to my mind. He said, first, 
after 2,000 years of waiting, the gates of the state of Israel are officially open. Any member of the Jewish faith is welcome to come home. And that is important not only uh, for those of us today who are members of the Jewish faith, but frankly for our children and our children's children and our children's children's children. That right will never, ever be taken away again. And we ultimately waited for 2,000 years for that moment. And our moment, frankly, is now. Our moment has finally arrived. Ben-Gurion stood at the lectern and he said something else. He said, we have been granted, Israel has been granted the great privilege and the obligation to tackle some of the gravest challenges of the 20th century. He seemed to be saying that at the very, very center, the very heart and soul of the state of Israel, its mission was to not only enrich and protect its own citizens, but has a global mission to make the world a better place. And today, we are seeing that mission take place in the form of technology. You look at Israeli tech, and it is truly helping those who cannot walk, walk again. It is helping us grow food for those who are hungry. It is helping, really, clothe those who need it most. It's there to really help the destitute. Israeli technology is truly moving beyond the borders of the state of Israel, far making the world a better place. And I'm, I'm happy to cite many, many examples in the realms of water, food, space, artificial intelligence, education, poverty. We are seeing an extraordinary uh, turn of events, and no one would have believed 72 years ago today that Israel would be producing more startups combined than Canada, India, Japan, Korea, and the United Kingdom combined. No one would have believed that Israel has more companies listed on the NASDAQ than any other country in the world outside of the United States and China. We really are witnessing, to my mind, an extraordinary turn of events and one that I, having come from a family of Holocaust survivors, but frankly, the Jewish people have been dispersed all over the world. This is truly an extraordinary turn of events. Yeah, this is this is very well said. And let's for for listeners, uh, one of the uh, one of the the keys to and this is my view in it's for the freedom and really the uh, the prosperity which has been of the United States is freedom of religion, uh, which is under fire globally in so many different countries and governments um, and Israel and and, and 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 to coincide with that, let's not also uh, forget. That uh, Jesus, who is who is who is praised globally, uh, primarily by by Christians, uh, he was Jewish. So so uh, so Avi, uh, you've brought brought together a lot of uh, interesting points here. Um, how does Israel ingenuity repair the world? So let's first talk about where the secret of 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 Israel's success has traditionally been. It's been really three keys, and I think in this context, it's it's important to point it out first. Israel has been successful largely because of its secular institutions. It has a military that is secular, and all but one of its universities are secular. And it has basically put liberal values uh, on a very, very high pedestal. One. Two, it is an extraordinarily diverse place. It has Christians, Muslims, and Jews. It has Christians of every stripe and every variety. It has Muslims of every stripe and every variety, Sunni, Shia, Alavi. I mean, we really see here Bedouin, Circassian, Arabs of every stripe and every variety, and obviously Jews of, of, all, of all stripes, denominations, and from all over the world. So we have secular values, we have diversity, and the last item is the prophetic tradition. For the last, let's just say about 2,000 years, the Jewish people have been praying every day, three times a day, the Elenu prayer, which calls upon us to repair the world 
in the image of God. Uh, ten times, no less than ten times, our Mishnah, which is one of the rabbinic teachings, uh, no less than ten times calls upon us to engage in something called tikkun olam, to repair the world. The prophet Isaiah calls upon us all, not just Jews, but all of us, to bring more light to the world. And you cannot call for curing the sick, feeding the hungry, helping the needy, day in and day out, and to bring more light to the world for 2,000 years, and for that not to have a deep influence on the cultural DNA of your people. The most important quintessential prayer of the Jewish people happens on Saturday night, where we are called upon to separate between the holiness and the mundane, and between lightness, between light and darkness. And ultimately, when you start thinking about problems and you start thinking about the world in terms of darkness and light, and that our role as human beings is here to all of us, and I mean Muslims, Christians, and Jews, this is a universal human yearning to bring more light to the world, there is nothing that we can't accomplish. Over the course of the next decade, two, three, we are going to experience massive changes in our society. Just think about the fact that only 12 years ago, the iPhone arrived into the world. Can you imagine where we're going to be in 12 years' time? All the great futurists point to the fact that by 2029, we think that we're going to actually get rid of all disease. Parkinson's, ALS, Parkinson's, major neurological diseases, gone. By 2030, we think that we're going to have be a society, humanity, on completely renewable energy. By 2030, computers are going to be processing faster than the human brain and pass something called the Turing test. By 2040, we're going to be able to upload our thoughts from our neocortex to the synthetic cortex in the cloud. And by 2045, futurists basically think that we're going to be part man, part machine. We are in for the most extraordinary course of human events that we have ever witnessed. We're going to experience over the course of the next 30 years, 50,000 years of progress. And at the same time, we have massive global challenges that we need to address, the environment, space, artificial intelligence, poverty, education, and we have the tools to do that. And Israel is perfectly positioned to make a outsized contribution to massive global challenges. We're seeing it today, and we are going to see it over the course of the coming decade, two, three. Avi, let's talk about uh, – you've got a neighbor there pretty close – to Israel. You've got Iran. They've got weapons of mass destruction pointed at Israel. Um, but let's let's talk about innovation and ingenuity that's happening in Israel and Jerusalem. Uh, for instance, uh, Israel is water independent, yet it's 60% desert. Talk about that for a moment, please, Avi. I'm, I see you've read my book. So I basically go through this and thou shalt innovate. And I talk about the fact that it is ironic that Israel is 60% desert and is the world's one and only water superpower, okay? They have leveraged five different innovations in order to become water independent. It is the only country in the world that doesn't depend on the weather or its neighbors for its water consumption. And it has managed to do this as a result of five different innovations. The first is desalination. Uh, desalination was actually created in the United States and California, but the man who created it made Aliyah to Israel two years after he created it and perfected it in Israel. Um, Israel has uh, five desalination plants, which provides over 50% of the potable water that Israel consumes. And it has built over 300 desalination plants all over the world, including the largest desalination plant in the Western Hemisphere in California, 
and the largest desalination plant in China and in India. One. Two, Israel's produced drip irrigation. For those of you that are gardeners, or your listeners that are gardeners, you can get this at Home Depot. Uh, drip irrigation is used by over a billion farmers. That's millions with a B. And essentially, it's these small plastic tubes that emit a smaller amount, a third of the water, and doubles the yield. Uh, in the United States, we tend to think of sewage water as being disgusting. Not so in Israel. In the United States, we essentially flush our toilets, our water authorities clean the water twice, and then that water is dumped back into our rivers and oceans. In Israel, the water, when you go to the toilet, yeah. first of all, the human waste is separated and used as fertilizer, one. And then the water is cleaned five times, and 90% of that water is recycled for agricultural purposes. It's the world's leader when it comes at 90%. The United States recycles about 6% of its water. Israel's at 90%. Um, we, are, we are seeing a massive amount of the water. Now, technically, you could drink that water, but it's a little disgusting to drink sewage water, so they don't do it. But that is coming to a tap near you. In the United States, we're going to experience massive water shortages in 40 out of the 50 U.S. states over the course of the coming decade. Israel also uses artificial intelligence in order to track water leaks. And finally, my favorite is the two-button toilet. Button one, button two, big flush, little flush, number one, number two. And as a result of that, Israel's become water independent. Now let's talk about Iran and Egypt and some of Israel's other neighbors and how that impacts them. Egypt, a country that I lived in for not a short amount of time, in five years' time, in 2025, is going to run out of drinking water. I'm going to repeat that because it's important. 100 million people are going to run out of water in five years' time. We are quickly running towards a national, an international calamity, not only in Egypt, but in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, large parts of Europe, and to some degree in the United States. Same is true in Iran today. In 20 years' time, Iran today has 80 million people. In less than 20 years, 50% of its population is going to run out of water. They're going to be water refugees. That is a term that we are going to hear a lot about over the course of the next decade. Now, Iran points its missiles at Israel today, which is ironic. I tend to think that in the next 20 years, Iran will be begging Israel for its water experts. Egypt, over the course of the next five, will be turning to Israel. I ultimately think that in the Middle East, over the course of the next decade, we are going to see a transformation uh, in terms of the relationship between Israel and the Arab world and Israel in the world. Truly, Israel is positioned to tackle some of the gravest challenges in the world, and we're seeing that before our very eyes. When, as I said, when it comes to water technology, when it comes to food, when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to medicine, when it comes to space, artificial intelligence, when it comes to education, we are seeing an explosion of value-positive technology coming out of the country, unlike anything we've seen before. This is remarkable, Avi, uh, and, and I want to get into uh, a few of the other innovations that are happening and coming out of Israel, uh, but let's, let's just, listeners may be thinking, like myself, what's, what's different? How, how, what's different about um, Israel? What's going on in Israel? What's, what's, what, what is spawning this creativity and this acceleration and innovation? I mean, ultimately, I, I tend to think of this as being two sides, two really things that, one, there's a, there's a need. We are seeing global challenges unlike anything we've seen before. The environment is something that we, in general, as humanity, is not taken seriously. We have a very checkered past when it comes to our um, uh, our impact on the environment. Uh, there, there's a huge debate on this now, and I don't want to engage in the debate whether this was caused by humans, not caused by humans. Essentially, what we are seeing is a massive change in climate. Interesting. And, um, and so from an ingenuity perspective, this is something that we must tackle if humanity is to continue living on this planet. And I, and I tend to think that we are going to tackle these issues. 
this is not an if scenario. This is a must scenario. And as I said before, you have these this idea of secular the 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 combination of secular values of diversity and of a very long prophetic tradition together. And ultimately, it's this idea of failure and failure being a necessary component. No one likes to fail. But in Israel, if you've not failed, people look at you funny. And failure is baked into the equation in Israel. I'll tell you an interesting story. The other night, I, I sent a text message and arrow to the wrong individual. And I just I look, I said, oh. Sure. I made a big mistake, right? We all, we've all done that before. And my son looks at me and goes, Daddy, it's really good that you made a mistake. <laughs> I looked at him funny, and he said to me, I said, what? He said, Daddy, you have to fail in order to succeed. <laughs> wow. And that is something that we teach our children. And the, 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 the last message that I want to relay on in this regard is I'm going to share another story about my son. Three years ago, um, he was four years ago. He was he was five years old, and I came home from work. And my my wife at the time, I came I came home late, and she looked at me, and I knew that immediately something was wrong. And she came over sheepishly, and she said that my son had told a homeless person that he was a very bad man. And I have to tell you, I I thought I was a young father, and I thought to myself, oh, I've completely failed as a parent. And I thought about the innovators that are featured in my book. And I thought about my Holocaust survivor grandparents, and I asked uh, my son to – it was it was March. And we live in D.C., and it was cold. I asked him to get his coat on and his shoes on, and we um, – he asked me where we were going. I said we were going to go on a mission. And we got about halfway down the block, and I knelt down, and I said, uh, Aiden, why did you tell that homeless person that you're, a, that you're a bad man? And he didn't know the answer to that question. And so I pressed a little bit further, and I said, was it because he was black? Was it because he smelled like urine? Was it because he was surrounded by plastic bags? And my son did not know the answer to that question. And then I pressed a little bit further. I said, what are the five – I asked, what are the five rules that we have in our home? Because in our home, we only have five, five rules. And it's the same five rules that my grandparents gave me. And frankly, it's the, it's the same five rules that their grandparents gave before them. And he was all too happy to relay to me the five rules. And all of my children can easily relate recite the five rules in their sleep. Rule number one is to be a mensch, not a vildechaya. And for your listeners that don't speak Yiddish, that's the, the, the tongue of European Jewry, mensch means to be a good person, and vildechaya means a wild animal. So the rule number one is be a good person, not a wild animal. Rule number two is to make the world a better place. Rule number three is to never, ever give up Rule number four is to try your hardest. And rule number five is to try and have a good time. I said, very good, Aiden. What do we do when we make a mistake? And Aiden immediately told me that we do tzedakah. And for your listeners that don't know what tzedakah means, it literally, it's often translated into charity. But the root of the word tzedakah literally means justice. In this particular instance, it means social justice. I said, very good, Aiden. Here's the way this is going to go. We're going to find that homeless person. We're going to give them a couple of bucks. You're going to shake their hand. You're going to look them in the eye, and you're going to say, God bless you and keep you safe. And he said, Daddy, I can do that. And we walked a few blocks, and we found uh, that homeless person. He actually had two other homeless people next to him. And true to form, Aiden marched right up to this homeless person. He shook his hand. 
he looked him in the eye and he said, God bless you and keep you safe. And do you know what that homeless person did? Well, we had a very awkward moment. We had a very yeah. awkward moment of silence. He's looking at me. I'm looking <laughs> at him. He's looking at my son. They didn't really know what to do with themselves. And then you know what happened? He literally, he bear hugs my child. Wow. Here's a homeless person who's bear hugging my child, giving him high five. You're a little angel. What a good little boy. You could tell this was the first human interaction these guys had had in a very, wow. very yeah. long time. We walk away after a few moments and I kneel down again. And I say, Aiden, what just happened here? And he thinks for a moment, my son, he says, Daddy, I made the world a better place, and it feels good. Unbelievable. And when I think about that story, and I think about the state of Israel, and I think about the Jewish people, I know that our, our teachings, which are universal, we are taught that the world stands on three things. The world stands on Torah, which is the equivalent of Bible in Hebrew, but the truth of the matter is it really means values. And we, all of us, Muslims, Christians, and Jews— we all have a tremendous set of values that on one foot tells us, treat others like you wish to be treated. Make the world a better place. The second teaching that we are taught is avodah, hard work. No one would have believed 72 years ago today what Israel would have managed to accomplish, basically turning the country from a desert into a green, lush place that's truly making the world a better place. And gemilut chasadim, the idea of charity and kindness. And when you combine charity, kindness, hard work, and values, there is nothing that we can't accomplish as humanity. Nothing. We can make this world a better place. Ben-Gurion, as I said before, we've been given this great privilege and the obligation to now, me and you, Ian, and your listeners, to tackle some of the gravest challenges of the 21st century. Now, I don't know if any of your listeners are going to create the next great Google or Facebook or whatever it is, the next great tech company. But I know that each and every one of us has the great privilege and obligation to bring more light to the world. We can go visit the sick. We can do charity. We can open the door. We can help someone cross the street. We can truly, each and every one of us can bring more light to the world. And the moment we start thinking about this in terms of bringing light, there is nothing that we cannot accomplish. Yes, we can make the world a better place. So perhaps listeners may, some may take offense to this. I don't happen to be Jewish. Uh, but obviously, some of my best friends uh, in life have been Jewish. Um, and that's just been by whatever it may be, the laws of nature. Um, and one of them, I said... Um, I said, uh, I said, David, you're you you you're a you're a white man, and he stopped me dead in my tracks. And he says, No, no, I'm not white. I'm Jewish. So, Avi, what is it? Is in your view, and that was his opinion. And I, you know, they may differ, of course. Uh, there's there's a lot of Jews worldwide, but uh, and we're not necessarily talking about uh, Judaism, but. Uh, well, we, we are. Um, what is the Jewish DNA? Is are, are, uh, What is that in your view, Avi? What, what, what's making, uh, and I'm assuming you're Jewish, obviously, uh, what's making uh, the, the Jews a different type of person? Um, and, and again, I, I hope I don't offend with the way I phrase that. Not at all. Let me be very clear. I think we as all of us as humans are all the same. We all have the same DNA. We all have the same flesh and blood. We all have the same inclinations that we can go either towards good or towards evil. 
we all have the same sublime hopes and 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 uh, and and uh, we all have the same ability to make the world a better place or to tank it. So let me be clear: the Jews are not better than anybody else, in my opinion. Where I do think that uh, we have a unique value proposition to the world is the way that we have um, ultimately uh, our education system and our desire. I shouldn't say desire, but rather for, for thousands of years, we have been calling on humanity to cure the sick, feed the hungry, help the needy. And that ultimately, yeah. while it's something that we have been calling for, I believe strongly is a universal human yearning. I don't think that we're different than anyone else. With that said, this is something that we have been, our prophets and our prophetic tradition brought out long ago. And when you look at humanity, this is something that we all yearn for. When you think about it deeply, everyone wants to make the world a better place. And so I, I call upon your listeners to stand with me and stand with their children and do make the world a better place. Now, I don't know how many of your listeners have been to Israel. So step one, I would encourage everyone to go and see this modern-day miracle because in, to my mind, this is a modern-day miracle. Whether you're religious, whether you're secular, whether you're Republican, whether you're Democrat, skeptic, atheist, to my mind, Israel is a modern-day miracle. Now, there's no denying that Israel is a country that is rife with problems. I don't mean to suggest that Israel does not have problems. Rich Problems between the very rich and the very poor, problems with its neighbors, problems I mean, with housing, problems galore. With that said, there's also no denying that Israel is not a unique, there's a, you know, there are, there has great innovators that are bound together, not by religion, money, or stature, but rather right. a desire to make the world a better place. And when your listeners, should they go to Israel, I want, I ideally would like them to not only go, but I want them to take their children and their children's children. And I want them to take them to places like the Weizmann Institute, which is producing drugs that cure the sick. I want them to go to an organization like United Rescue, which, uh, which has Muslims, Christians, and Jews working together to save lives, or the Technion, which is engineering problems to massive global challenges. And frankly, I, I hope your listeners will read my book, and they would do me a great service that when I visit you, for example, Ian, at your home, I don't actually want to see my book on your bookshelf. I hope that you will get the book and you will give it to someone else. Because what we're seeing, I want these stories featured. I feature 15 stories of innovators, Muslims, Christians, and Jews that are tackling massive global challenges that are making the world a better place. And these are the stories that I hope that we will not only tell our children, but I want our children to see for themselves and your children to see for themselves. I want this modern-day miracle for people to see it for what it is with all of its blemishes, with all of its problems. I want people to also see the potential that Israel has and what we are, what all of us are going to achieve over the coming decades. And we are going to achieve a tremendous amount. And I, for one, am very, very hopeful. A beacon of light for the world. Uh, Avi, talk a little bit about, you mentioned, this is the first time I've heard anybody uh, say this, uh, talk a little bit about um, uh, climate change not being uh, not being a, or, uh, not being caused by humans, I think is, I think that's what you said. And then segue into uh, uh, solar energy and and what's to, what's going on uh, in, in in that regards. No, I for one believe that climate change was absolutely caused by humans. There's okay. no question in my mind that the amount of fossil fuel and the amount of carbon that we have put into the atmosphere has fundamentally altered the temperature of the planet. And if we don't roll that back, we are going to be in significant problems. 
I, 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 for one, am a firm believer that it, this is human-caused climate change. There are many, unfortunately, to my mind, that uh, see the world very differently. I tend to think that is a political issue rather than a scientific one, but that's a whole other story. And um, yeah, so I, for one, uh, look at climate change as something that we have the ability to solve, can, and should solve. Now, when it comes to Israel, Israel has now innovated a number of things to actually play a meaningful role in rolling back climate change. So one, for example, let's just use one. Most people don't know that the first commercially viable solar panel was created in Israel in the early 1950s. Harry Tzvi Tabor made Aliyah, came from the UK, and he had nothing but sunshine. He literally, Israelis, could not take hot showers in the 50s because there was not much energy for them. And so Israel, this Harry Tzvi Tabor, Israel's first chief scientist, innovated the first solar panel, and essentially that today is the basis for all solar energy in the world today. That first solar panel was created in Israel, and when you look at this is just one of many, many innovations. For those of you that have visited Israel or will visit Israel, you'll see that there's a solar panel on every single building, on every single home, on the rooftops of Israel. Israel is the world's leader when it comes to solar energy, and it's something that I am personally very, very proud of. I had the great privilege to interview Harry Tzitavor before he died at the age of 94 two years ago. Wow. Wonderful. Uh, Avi, uh, in the last uh, wind down here, maybe a few more moments we've got, uh, I want to get your uh, perspective on uh, your what's happening with uh, the coronavirus, how, to, how you're best dealing with that, uh, how is the world going to be a different place uh, because of it? So let's just, I want to bring back, to, so let's talk about corona because I think corona is fascinating. Uh, corona, 5% of the population uh, is going to experience corona in a very, very bad form, which is why we've all been talking about flattening the curve. You know, you can do the math on 5% of 350 million, and that is a very scary number. There are not enough ventilators in this country, which is why the government has been pushing flattening the curve very, very hard. The same has been true in Israel. 5% of 9 million is 450,000 individuals. Israel's the reason why they took such strong measures uh, a few months ago, they were the first, is because their hospitals are already at capacity, between 100 and 200 percent capacity. So Israel put in place very, very strong measures, which is why we've only seen roughly 200 deaths in Israel, which is truly mind-boggling. The second part of what we're seeing in Israel today, I think, is also pretty extraordinary. Israel today is working on converting CPAP machines, which uh, for those listeners who are not aware of what they are, they're plentiful and they're used for people that have sleep apnea, into ventilators. Israel today is working on converting clothing into protective gear, and they're also working on a vaccine. Now, whether Israel will produce a vaccine or not, I don't know. But it is incredible to think that the world is looking to Israel, among others, but they're among the front runners to create a vaccine for this horrible plague. And I, for one, am extraordinarily proud that a country that is only 72 years old is a world leader when it comes to medical technologies and is, I don't know whether will produce the vaccine, but it certainly can produce the, if anyone can produce the vaccine, it's Israel. Now, I'm going to imagine that most of your listeners uh, today are American. And I will tell you that one of the great privileges we have as American citizens is that we can lobby our, our members of Congress. And the right. greatest return on investment that America has gotten um, over the course of the last, I don't know, 35 years 
has been the relationship with the state of Israel. And when we lobby our members of Congress, all the money that goes to Israel, Israel today receives $3 billion in, in aid. Israel is not a charity case. That money comes back and is used in the United States. Israel provides the United States of America three things, to my mind. Number one is we have a strong military ally in that part of the world. Right. And that comes back in, dro in droves for us. Two, Israel shares our values. It is about freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association. Israel truly shares our values. And far more importantly, the outsized contribution that Israel makes to American lives when it comes to education, when it comes to water tech, food tech, is truly extraordinary. You cannot turn on your phone today without using Israeli technology. You cannot eat your salads today without cherry tomatoes. You don't have every computer computer chip that has been that is in computers today in some way, shape or form is tied back to Israeli technology. We today are living in a world that almost exclusively exclusively, but every piece of tech has Israeli fingerprints in there. And that really is a uh, is a remarkable story. Israel today is making an outsized contribution. It is not the only one making a contribution. It is making, though, an outsized contribution to making our lives here in the United States better. Yeah, we were fortunate a few weeks ago to have on Dr. Yoram Lass join the program, former Director General of the Health Ministry of Israel. And he has some interesting th things to say about uh, COVID-19, uh, that strain of the coronavirus. Uh, Avi, uh, being, uh, I'm assuming, a, a, a dual citizen or perhaps, of course, obviously, as you say, American by birth, uh, I'm assuming you may also be Israeli uh, a national. Uh, let's yeah. focus here on uh, the United States and um, what's the best foot forward in your view? Your accounts on the foreign, uh, foreign affairs. Uh, you, you've written for a number of well-known publications. You've got a, a best-selling book here. Uh, what's the best foot forward for, um, for Americans? Uh, you, you mentioned some of the values that were, uh, that we share with, with Israel. Um, and, uh, it, it, but in the United States, uh, how do you view that? How, how, how can America become a more unified? It seems that so many things are dividing it. How, how does America move forward uh, in a more unified uh, manner? I mean, certainly, I can't speak to how the United States is going to unify. We have 50 U.S. states. We are a continent. I mean, this is a, this is a huge country. What I can say is that Israel, at least from my experience, has come up with a number of very, very clever and ingenious ways of improving the world. And it's something that each and every one of us in whatever state you're in can take back. I know that you are today in Miami. And when we look at some of the challenges facing Florida, uh, we have massive challenges facing Florida. Yeah. Look, South Florida today is going underwater. We don't know where South Florida is going to be in 10, 20, 30 years. It's certainly reasonable to think that South Beach may or may not be around. Uh, Florida's facing an issue when it comes to rising waters, food security, water security, when it comes to desalination. Israel has a whole host of technologies that can and should be used. And I would encourage your listeners to talk to their elected officials, to talk to their members of Congress and say, what can we do together with Israel to either solve existing problems or help Israel tackle? We can either tackle this together or figure out what Israel has done to really help alleviate the problems that we're experiencing in Florida and around the world today. Because Israel, is, as I said before, has innovated a whole host of innovations and something that is really fundamental to our lives. As we're sitting corona, and many of us are in lockdown, 
I, for one, am thinking about what can each and every one do, what can each and every one of us do, me and my family and with my children, what role can we play to make the world better? And that's something that I am seeing in Israel today, and it's something that inspires me, and it's something that I hope that will inspire your listeners. Senior Fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council, Avi Yorish. Avi, thanks for joining Discussion of Truth. Sounds like you're doing a wonderful job raising that family of yours. Thank you. You're very kind. I wish you continued success. The next time I come on your show, I just hope that we're all bringing more light to the world and that uh, we will be out of this COVID nightmare. And, uh, and frankly, I encourage you and your listeners, come to Israel, see the miracle that this country represents with all of its blemishes, but the promise that it has. Thank you, Avi. Thank you kindly. Uh, what a wonderful contribution to discussions of truth. Look, I uh, am familiar with what Avi does. Obviously, it was Thou Shalt Innovate, How Israeli Ingenuity Repairs the World. That book that Avi has just written uh, recently, uh, it, is, it is that that, that's, that spawned the invitation to join the program. But, uh, but I was not expecting... Uh, I was not expecting uh, the delivery that was given today. Um, and there is, being the on the birth uh, day, I believe he said, of Israel, um, uh, on this special day, if in that sense, it, 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 it may be wrong, it may not be today, it may just, uh, but, but, but regardless, what we're looking at is a, uh, a nation uh, that was defined uh, geographically, uh, what seventy was he say seventy two uh, years ago? Uh, was it seventy seven? Um, seventy plus years ago, um, and look at what they have they've done. And, and this is that is that is why that is why I opened up with the question with Avi is why were Jews persecuted under the Hitler regime? Why why why? Why? Like he said, we are all human beings, regardless of religious belief, regardless of political platform. Let's hope that each and every one of you listen, regardless of your country, fights for a free and just platform from in which to live, because you are the government, not vice versa. You are the government. Uh, but we are all human beings. And uh, we we all have the ability to contribute to society, to the world, to the planet in a very positive way. Okay, many times on the program, we focus, I focus, on things that are drawing society down. Like I said, the middle class, and I haven't looked at statistics and figures, but middle class is shrinking in the United States, folks. That's a problem. That's a problem because that means that economically, you're not living the way you could be living. All right? Uh, it's, it's, an, it's an issue, and like Robin Hood, this is one of the reasons that we do what we do on Discussions of Truth. I thank you for listening. And I'll be right back with 
another hour of discussion of truth with Doki Fasian. Fassi, if I pronounced that right, she she just happens to be Iranian. Okay, this will be interesting, right? Because what we all strive for, right, is to learn. Let's let's hope we're all humble enough to be able to learn from one another, right? You, you, you look at you look at Avi and how he's raising his kids, and he's teaching them, and it seems to be a societal norm. He's teaching them that failure leads to success. Not be afraid to ask that question. Not be afraid to make a mistake. That 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 creates a a a, a wonderful wonderful cultural positive to incubate and grow freedom of thinking and thus innovation. So a lot in common going on between the United States, be it its constitution, and Israel, and we'll happen to be back next hour with a human rights expert She's led three non-governmental organizations working in the areas of human rights, democracy, and Iranian affairs. Okay, and and yes, I did say in my episode some of my best friends have happened happened to be Jewish. It's not; it just happens to be that way. But I've also had some very good Iranian friends as well. So it, people worldwide are beautiful. It's up to you to be awesome. And I'll be back in a few moments with another episode of Discuss Your Truth. Thanks for joining. Share with a friend. Uh, buy a t-shirt. Stop Mass Media. Um, yes, it's happening. Media is not giving you information that you should be getting. Period.